0: This podcast contains information, theories, and speculation based on the A Song of Ice and Fire books by George R.R. R. Martin. It can and will spoil future episodes of the HBO television series Game of Thrones. This is your one and only spoiler warning. If you're looking for our non-spoiler podcast on Game of Thrones, please look at our feed archive for Sunday night and Tuesday afternoon releases or visit baldmove.com for our entire catalog. everybody, welcome back to another spoiler podcast edition for episode 505 of HBO's Game of Thrones television series. Brought to you, of course, as always, by Bald Move. You can find all of our content at baldmove.com. First, I got to issue a correction slash retraction slash uh, clarification about Barriston, because I confused a lot of you when I talked about uh, him last week. And his, I, I mentioned that... Uh, Barriston dies with Kraz at the end, but then 30 seconds later, I said, but we still know he's alive and kicking in the books. I don't know why I said died. I, it was just a brain fart. Um, but I did not mean to imply that. Yes, we, from, from everything we know in the books and also in the leaked previews, not leaked, uh, released preview chapters for The Winds of Winter, Barriston the Bold is very much alive and kicking in, um, in Marine. And we've got some interesting uh we got some interesting tinfoil at the end about that. So stay tuned for some of that. I apologize for kind of making him Schrodinger sell me, having him both alive and dead in, in last podcast. Uh I also want to talk about that scene with Eamon and John. I kinda of made a sly reference in the main podcast about that, but I thought it was pretty funny. From a book reader standpoint, John uh walking into to the room and getting the cameras focused, just as Aemon says, what a terrible thing it is to be a Targaryen and alone in the world. I thought that was uh pretty delightful. Also, uh, if we put our book binoculars on and look ahead, they're clearly laying the framework for Sam to go to the Citadel, talking about where there's the majority of the books and how Sam's always had this uh desire to be a Maester. I think You know, obviously, some people have said, well, maybe they'll just uh, Martin's razor that part of the plot out. But I don't know, because we know that there is at least one Sand Snake, the uh, Sorella slash Arellis connection that we talked about in last season's tinfoil cast about the uh, possible um, what, what Jacken's up to and possible Jacken identity theories. We know there is a lot of stuff going on in the Citadel. Something that's important into the research of magic and dragons that might kind of blow this whole scenario wide open. And I doubt that they get away from doing that with the with with the TV show. Uh, could be wrong, but I, I they they've got to remix that some some way because Martin clearly thinks it's important. And unlike some of these other things, like Quentin Martell and uh, um. John Connington and Young Griff and Aegon and all that stuff. I don't know that they can kind of reduce that any more than it already is. So they need, I think, Sam to go to the Citadel to achieve some purpose later on in the plot. Um, however, I'm wondering how they'll rationalize sending Gilly. Um, you know, I don't I, I may be as simple as Sam saying I can't leave Gilly here alone with all these rapists and thieves. Uh, I need to take her with me. Uh, Melisandre is not at the wall, so don't have to worry about her trying to, you know, burn this, this child of hers, which was the, the reason they sent her off the, the protector and her child, uh, they sent her off from the wall in in the books. So I don't know, because, um, as much as I want to see, uh, you know, in my quest for penile equality, I want to see, uh, Sam rocking his fat pink mast and <laughs> getting his, uh, first sexual experience with Gilly I'm having a hard time seeing how they'll rationalize sending her off on the boat. Um, Maester Amon also as they've talked about him being in poor health and sick. It would be interesting if uh he just calls an audible with John and being at hard home saying, uh, I need to I, I need to go to the citadel for some reason before I die and he decides to take, you know, Sam and Gilly with her. Maybe the maybe the black brothers are getting rowdy in John's absence. I don't know. I haven't figured that part out yet also have a possible Solis theory and going back and forth with some emails and on the forums with some fans. Uh, I've been thinking about what Jim and I were discussing on the show, which is that they're setting us up on, on the show for some kind of danger between Melisandre and Shireen. And we know in the books that things get pretty dire on the march to Winterfell for Stannis' forces. You know, the snows start piling on. Uh, there's no food. People are freezing to death. I wonder how the hell Stannis, though, would possibly allow Shireen to be burned, especially after that father-daughter bonding moment they had a few weeks ago. You know, there's one possibility, and I kind of alluded to this in the main cast, in a moment of weakness uh, or perhaps some kind of magical manipulation by Melisandre, he allows his daughter to be burnt to uh, save his men. In the books, Stannis looks more and more haggard as the series progresses, which suggests that Melisandre's blood magic is taking a progressive toll on his body. And and his spirit, maybe we'll get a sin, a scene of some haunted, sunken eyed, grayed skin Stannis ordering his daughter to be put to death in like a monotone um, for the greater good of the realm or or selise Stannis wife's makes this suggestion because it seems like she's, you know, hates her daughter and is always looking for a way to offer or uh, put her up for the fires Maybe she tries to pull this shit, and it's the last draw for Stannis, and he has Selyse burnt instead. I mean, we've got all this talk of king's blood. What's queen's blood worth in the blood magic market anyway? I imagine it's not worth nothing, and maybe we'll find out. That's that's my uh, pet theory right now. Getting on to the feedback, let's let's get right to it. Kevin L., uh, mentions the theory about Melisandre and her possible parentage. It says it's very interesting. It seems plausible enough to me, but I initially was not sure where it fits or if it even mattered. Then in the past episode, I noticed something small which may be support for it. When Solis negatively mentions that Jon Snow is a bastard, Melisandre became very bristly towards her. Normally she is nice to Solis, as if trying to butter her up. But Solis definitely struck a nerve with Melisandre by besmirching Jon because of his bastardhood. Perhaps she took advance to this because she herself is a royal bastard. Perhaps she feels a bond with John because they both overcame their unfortunate birth status to rise to power in spite of their last names. You know, this antipathy between Celise and Alessandra is one of the things that had my wheels spinning about this burning Solis theory that I just laid out. Other than that, maybe this is the beginning of the hint of an S plus B equals M confirmation on the show. Who knows? We know one thing... Uh, Blood Raven is up in the north with Bran. They have a part to play. So does Melisandre. So if they do have a connection in their past, there is a 0% chance that this doesn't make it into the books. This isn't a Roose Bolton vampire lord kind of theory, which may never be true, uh, proven and yet can never be disproven either. If S plus B equals M isn't true, I think it's going to be obvious before it's all over because those two are two powerful forces coming in contact, and if it just happens that that's Blood Raven's daughter or, you know, granddaughter, I feel like that that's going to come out. I feel like we will get confirmation if this is true. Remy K. Can you elaborate more on why there are so many tinfoil hats and theories about Howland Reed? I do not recall in the books what a significant role was, and sadly only remember mentioning of him by his children and stories told to the, the Bran. Well, it's... It's nothing that's really buried, Remy. Um, Ned Stark and Howland Howland Reed are not only very good friends and mutual supporters, but they're also the last two people on Planetos that were left standing on the assault on the Tower of Joy. Now, if you recall my discussion of R plus L equals J, you'll know that the Tower of Joy is the tower where Rhaegar hid Lyanna Stark away during the rebellion uh, and where Ned found her uh, on a bed of blood. She was protected by Sir Arthur Dane, Sir Oswald Wint, and the Lord Commander uh, of the Kingsguard, Gerald Hightower, three of the biggest badasses in Westeros at the time. Ned, Howland, and five other stalwart northerners managed to defeat the Kingsguard, but just barely, because the other five didn't make it. So if you subscribe to the R plus L equals J theory, that means that Howland is currently the only person left alive that we know for sure is aware that Jon is the son of Rhaegar Targaryen. Now, book readers have impatiently awaited Howland's appearance in the story. Other than sending Jojen and Mira Reed to Bran to begin his greenseer training, he's been AWOL this whole time. Which is strange, since you'd think if, again, and, you know, I'm just assuming this theory is true, it's like 99.9% confirmed for me, Um, and especially now that they're playing lip services in the show, that's might be ninety nine point nine nine nine. I might get six sigma on this shit before the series before this uh, season's over. Uh, anyway, if you take all that, you'd think you'd have to some big role to play in the series. Well, if Howland Reed is actually the High Septon, or excuse me, the High Sparrow, that neatly explains his absence because he's not been absent at all, right? He's directly striking against the heart of all Stark enemies and ironically subverting a faith he doesn't believe in to do it, which further weakens the southern lords that he's trying to take vengeance on. So that's kind of why people assume he's important and are looking for him to appear in the story. Daniel T. So now that the show is cutting down on material and condensing, I have some thoughts. The Boltons most likely will be around for a while. Stannis will probably fail and or be killed by Brienne. Let's not forget his evil shadow baby that killed his brother, regardless of reasons or likability now, that probably won't go unpunished. I assume they'll be around a while because if they don't introduce a new quote-unquote bad faction, we don't really have many bad guys left. The Lannisters are a shell of their former self. Jaime's becoming an almost protagonist, and Tyrion has been there a long time. Tywin is dead and only Cersei is left, and she won't last. She has no real power anyway. The Freys are still out there, but they aren't a huge force with, with big aspirations. Without Lady Stoneheart running around and no Manderlys yet, either, what do we have? We have the Danny nonsense over there that no one cares about. Bad guys around her, but no threat to Westeros. They just want their slaves and her to be gone. We have Jon at the Wall and the White Walker plot. The Wilding threat is over. Littlefinger is running around setting up for something. With Sansa set up to take uh, help take down the Boltons. So with John being the only one focused on the White Walkers, everyone else is focused on their own power grabs. The only threat to the crown right now is Stannis and possibly the Boltons. So who are the bad guys? Is just going to be all the ones we like fighting to the death for the crown until the White Walkers become a huge threat. So my response to you, Daniel, is even if this is all true, this is a good thing. We only have two books left, uh, two maybe three seasons tops left, The whole War for the Dawn, the fight against a teeming horde of ice creatures we don't even understand, uh, is is in front of us. And you got to ask, you know, talking about the others, how likely is it that Gurm has created a one-dimensional evil force to set against the quote-unquote good guys? I mean, in my mind, it's not likely at all. This guy does not do absolute good and absolute evil. I'm not saying I think we're going to get a Night's King POV chapter or Rotting Ice Corpse number 57 POV chapter or any crap like that, but I do think there is going to turn out to be a lot more to the others than we've gotten so far. They're not going to be just some pure evil alien force we can't comprehend. And I think we got a little bit of hint there last year with their transformation sequence. It was chilling and creepy, but I don't know that it felt evil. I mean, you could argue that these guys were saving this abandoned child. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, it, it's, we don't have enough information to to, to know what we're up against there, but that's my whole point. We need how many pages to contextualize the threat of the others and what their real motivation are and what they're actually doing up there. Uh, You know. Danny still has to tame her dragons. She still has to land in Westeros. Westeros has to unite behind somebody if there's going to be hope to be had. Uh, There's going to be this stuff is all going to take time, namely two more books and at least two more seasons of television. So, yeah, we're winding things down and reducing threats, reducing enemies. But I think that's appropriate when we're five sevenths through the plot of the story. We're also forgetting uh, the Dornish and whatever the hell they're up to. I don't believe for a second that Prince Dorn is just going to throw his hands up and give up uh, once he hears that Quentin is a burnt crisp. It's got to be something more going down there uh, at the tip of, southern tip of Westeros. You got the Tyrells. Uh, and I did not get the impression that Ty- uh, Cersei was done fighting either now that she has Robert Strong on her side. I mean, what, it took two, three episodes of a television show to deal with Tyrion's Trial? Uh, both the the trial proper and also the trial by combat i think cersei's going to last at least that long especially if the klegane Bowl get hype theory is true that sandor is going to come down from the north um a, a, a living with the quiet men on the was it the island of sorrows um he's going to come he's going to come down and uh, fight his brother i mean I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I believe in the book version of the the Gravedigger equals the Hound. I believe that's true. Uh, But it could also be just a nice send-off for this character at peace. It doesn't necessarily mean that George is putting him on a shelf to use later. But if that is true, if the Clegane Bowl uh, undead Gregor versus healed and newly hopeful champion the Faith Sandor, that's going to take a little bit of time to develop, too. There's a lot of plot left. We gotta quit. I think, I think it's high time we stop squabbling with all these minor lords and, and kings and queens and get to that stuff. So there's not a lot of time left. I think we're right where we need to be, uh, even if, if uh, all that analysis is true. Moving on to Zach. I've been thinking about the significance of the Lord of Light in regards to Barak, Catlin, and Brienne's story arc for some time now, and I'm wondering if there are more tinfoil theories out there covering this. Thus far, it seems none of these characters are affecting the main storyline, but have been giving everyone some hope that Stoneheart or Brienne will avenge the Starks in some blaze of glory-killing conquest. Personally, I don't think the Lord of Light cares about the Starks or their fans. My theory is that the Lord of Light uh, has used one of his only vessels in Westeros, Thoros of Myr, to awaken some demon who has been steadily getting stronger and stronger and hopping from body to body to realize some plot that we are currently unaware of. Here are some points that I am considering. I thought it was very strange that Barrett gave his life for Kat by giving her the kiss of life, considering that she was a rotting corpse and has no banners after all. And why on earth did he think that would work? With that knowledge of how this quote-unquote gift works, it makes me wonder if Barrett just wanted to kiss some rotten corpse and he unexpectedly killed himself in doing so, which serves him right for being a necrophiliac. Maybe this would make more sense if there was a demon inside him that knows how these rules work and wanted to inhabit a body that is arguably a step up from Beric in terms of power and recognition. Beric tells us he's getting weaker and weaker every time he dies, which is another way of saying the demon inside of him is getting stronger and stronger. When we see Stoneheart, it seems the demon is almost in absolute control. When we see Breen at last, the scene is quite creepy, although Jamie comments on her face being bitten off. He also says she looks much older. Well, to be fair, a face-biting can do that to, to a person. I assume that she's already dead at this point from the hanging. Moreover, to entrust the killing of Jamie Lannister to Brienne doesn't make much sense if Brienne only said she would do it in the middle of her hanging. Maybe they took Pod as hostage, but is there any proof that Brienne even cares about some random kid? For me, it makes more sense if this demon transferred to Brienne's body after the hanging leaving Lady Stoneheart a cold corpse once again. This may explain why they've already ditched her story arc in the show. The problem with my theory is even if the demon is getting more and more vicious, his motives are often hidden by the characters he's possessing. Of course Cat wants to go around killing people. Of course Brienne is most likely killing Jamie to save Pod. Either way, I think it would be interesting if the next time we see Jamie, he is awfully creepy looking and ready to kill someone. After all, he has access to nearly any high lord in the land, including his own sister, I'm not sure of the demon's motives, but taking Jamie's body is most likely a good move. Well, Zach, that is a very novel theory with not a lot of hard evidence. But you know, as you said in your email, that I didn't read this part. You you kind of know that already. Um, Jamie being possessed by a demon would be kind of interesting with some of this Valonqar theories of the little brother. Uh, you know, the 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 Cersei prophecies, uh, the the little brother which is the direct translation for the Valerian word Valonqar. Um, it would be interesting from that standpoint. But uh, I want to point out that Gurm himself confirmed back in 2012 at a convention appearance, uh, this is in the So Spake Martin archive, that Brienne uh, choked out the word sword while she was being hung, and he also said her main motivation was sparing Podrick Payne's life. So Brienne being alive and trying to save someone under her protection, because after all, Pod is her squire, I think it's well within her character. I mean, he's not just some boy. Even if he was just some boy, Brienne, uh his her first and last instinct is always to preserve innocent life. I mean, she sees herself as uh a a true knight. I mean, she doesn't call herself a knight, but she embodies those principles more than any of the real knights in the kingdom. So I think that's well within her character and it's hard to explain from a demonic possession point of view. Uh, also the Lord of Light is kind of this mythical savior force behind Azor Ahai who is seen as this figure of good and who saved mankind from the long night. Now, on the other hand, Lightbringer, the famous sword of Azor Ahai, was forged in the beating heart of his wife. And the Lord of Light does seem to demand a hell of a lot of human sacrifice for a benevolent deity, So who knows? If I'm honest, though, I think my internal magic eight ball, if I shook it and turn it upside down, would say about this theory, outlook not so good. I think introducing this new demonic force, um, a literal kind of deity that's possessing vessels on Earth, doesn't seem like there's a lot of support texturally or thematically in the books for this kind of stuff. Not saying it can't happen, just saying that we need a little bit more proof uh, to take it serious. Josh H says it certainly looks like they're setting up Ollie to be the Brutus to John Caesar, but do you think the double D's could throw us a huge curve and leave John unscathed? Maybe Gurm's John resurrection is sloppy and hard to film with various wargings and skin changing. And they decided to skip all that noise and ditch the night watch mutiny. I guess with him traveling to hard home and back, they could show Bowen Marsh and Sir Alistair twirling their mustaches and pouring poison in Ollie's ear, but I'm not su- quite sure they'll go there. Or perhaps they will still want to give everyone the cliffhanger that the book readers felt, and he will be badly wounded at Hardhome. I'm guessing this is where we'll see Rattleshirt again, and it's entirely plausible that that situation could sour quickly. So, what you really have to ask yourself, Josh, is are the Double D's afraid if they don't kill John that a bunch of book readers won't surround them in cloaks chanting, for the books? Because that's what I think would happen, to be honest. I think that, you know... From what I've seen of, you know, the change to Only Your Sister to the change of uh, Fetch Me a Block from some of the other changes that there would be riots in the street if he doesn't have the black brothers kill John. So, I mean, I think there is some things I like here, like Rattleshirt. I think we'll see Rattleshirt again. Uh, He's unaccounted for in the show. He's a very recognizable, visually distinct villain. And if the plot requires any kind of skullduggery or any kind of sedition within the Wilding Army, any kind of shit in the break bad between them and the Black Brothers, even if it's someone else entirely in the books, which it would have to be since Rattleshirt got the Royal Mance Raider treatment in the books, Martin's Razor suggests that they would just reuse him. Uh, I also think him being wounded in Hardhome, hard home, uh, John, not, not Rattleshirt. John being wounded in hard home is just a far less interesting plot point than a black brother rebellion uh, offering him or offing him Caesar style. So I to me that's the double D remix seems to be using Martin's razor to eliminate extraneous plots, and extraneous characters. This is just change for change sake. And it's if that's the case, it's the biggest change for change sake they've ever made. And I don't know if I like it. Moving on from Sean from Kansas. I was thinking which characters could show up at Winterfell near the end of the season for the Ramsey uh, and Sansa wedding. The Brotherhood without banners? Possibly with Gendry in tow if he ever got back to them after leaving Dragonstone. It, it takes a long time to row row from Dragonstone to Winterfell, y'all. I'm just saying. In the books, it looks like the Brotherhood is preparing to infiltrate the up- upcoming Frey wedding at Winterf- Winter Run. Good Christ. In the books, it looks like the Brotherhood is preparing to infiltrate the upcoming Frey wedding at Riverrun, but that storyline is likely gone from the TV show. Or maybe they show up in Winterfell. So I'm not sure why you think the Frey wedding won't happen. I think it will. It's just going to happen in next book and thus probably next season. But back to your email. The Blackfish, Brendan Tully, they made a point of clarifying that he escaped the Red Wedding, but he hasn't been seen since. In the books, many assume he's in hiding, protecting Jean Westerling, which is Rob's wife in the books, who may have become pregnant. But in the show, wouldn't it make more sense for him to try to protect or save Cat's daughter? You know, I've been saying the great John would make a really great Lord Manderly replacement, but goddamn, damn it, the Blackfish wouldn't be even better. He's a Riverlander, so the whole North remembers rhetoric uh, isn't going to sound the same coming out of his mouth. But shit, they already had Ramsey say it, and that just about made me vomit. Maybe the Great John and the Blackfish join together as some kind of grizzled old man badass duo. I think that would be pretty cool. I just. The, the Great John showing up at Winterfell for the Stark Bolton wedding makes a lot more sense because he's a Lord of the North. Uh, the Blackfish showing up openly would be a harder sell because I would think Roos would just execute him on site. Right. Uh, The other Northern Lords have to kind of swear fealty to Roos while he's got the dominant position in the North. So I can see Roos, you know, he's like, I got to lead these guys. I can see him allowing those people. He has to, I mean, you got, you're going to throw a wedding for the North. You got to have the Northern Lords there. Blackfish doesn't make that invite list. He continues, will Weld or Frey be there? And if so, there's no way he gets out of Winterfell alive. And I agree, which probably means he won't be there. Uh, He continues, Asher Greyjoy, will she make one more attempt to rescue Theon or is that storyline dead? I think it's dead. But then again, I think that about all the Greyjoys save Theon. And also having saying that, uh, what is dead may never die. I think they threw in the rescue attempt last season, honestly, solely to show us the audience how utterly broken Theon was. And... You know, I guess also to kind of pay off the Asha Theon stuff from before. I I, I don't know. I'm kind of grasping the straws there. I, I guess it makes sense because you didn't know that he was truly broken until you gave him a credible escape attempt from someone he knows and he trusts and would absolutely know it would be loyal to him. And it looked like it's successful. And what does Theon do? He locks himself up uh, rather than go with his sister. That showed us unquestionably that Theon was a broken, broken man. Uh, And had no fight left in him, at least at that point. So I think that's—I think it's a done deal. I think the Greyjoys are dead um, until they come up from the water, spit and salt. So we'll see. Chris from Kentucky says, "I just don't buy into R plus L equals J theory." He's one of the point oh 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 one percent that doesn't believe it. He's not six sigma on this. I think John is the son of Ashara Dane and Brandon Stark. Ooh. That's a good one. I actually almost did that for the tinfoil this week. Uh, I'm pretty sure the Ashara Dane, the A plus B equals J theory is going to be coming down the pike uh, as alternate R plus L equals J theories uh, later this season. So stay tuned to that. Continuing with Chris, he says, I think, or I would still give him some fire and ice blood since the Danes have Targaryen blood in them. I think Danny is the savior for the realm and the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna. I think John will be resurrected by... Who we believe is the quote unquote Night King, but it's really John who is the Night King. It's Jon Snow who will lead the others into the battle for the realms of men. It's Danny who will save them with the help of the other Targaryen Tyrion. So, John resurrecting as evil or at least vengeful, like his stepmom, Kat, is a very popular theory. But as I discussed in the main podcast, Danny being evil is another popular possibility too. Uh, There's a lot of evidence to suggest that the Night King was a Stark, the first and original Night King, so this would have a lot of symmetry to this. And if he hadn't burnt Egret's corpse, I'd think it would be even more possible, since a white version of Egret would have been an awesome Night's Queen counterpoint to the Night King, which, according to legend, the Night Queen was responsible for subverting the old Lord Stark uh, commander in the first place. John being an evil ice lord with Danny opposing him with dragonfire would also work thematically in the terms of ice and fire playing out too. A lot of people think that's, you know, John and Danny marrying and ruling forever and ever. The song Ice and Fire could just as easily imply that they're in opposition. It's, it's an equal and opposite force. John could be the good guy and Danny could be the fire and blood conqueror that needs to be put down, or vice versa, or they could team up um or they could both be evil and then the realms fucked i mean that's, that's that's a whole what is martin playing at that i was trying to get at the last podcast we don't really know whether we're in for a good ending or a bad ending but there'll be more for uh more top and more of that discussion of that topic next week on the main cast oisa now a i still don't know how to pronounce your name uh if i'm butchering it please please next time you write in give me a pronunciation guide Uh, They continue or they they start out. I like what they've done with Stannis, even though his character is slightly different from the books. But I kind of wish they'd shown a quick scene of them giving an order for the mining of Obsidian to start a dragonstone like in the books to show that he was taking the threat of the White Walkers seriously. Ah, agreed. That scene would have worked so much better if Stannis had just clapped Sam on the shoulder and said, I'll dispatch a team of men to start a quarry for dragonglass immediately. Your books might be far more important than winning the upcoming war than your father's blade. It's super annoying to me that they made Sam, you know, this this Sam is kind of awesome moment combined with the Stannis is a great leader moment. And they made it into something that made them both look obtuse as hell like i i don't I don't think they consider them obtuse, but the way they just kind of drag this revelation and kind of it going anywhere makes them both seem you know like the Springfield police department from Simpsons They just you know thumbs up their ass heads up their ass as well She continues or he continues you continue. I also very much enjoyed Sansa being placed as the outsider to witness all of this brewing tension in the Bolton household. And while I do understand the need for the showrunners to gradually develop Sansa's character into whatever she needs to become, just like they did with John and Danny, I do hope that they are smart enough to give her enough agency so it doesn't seem like she's reverting back to her old ways. I totally agree with you once again. I am over Sansa being the victim. She has to contribute and in a major way to her liberation or I'm going to be Pretty fucking annoyed. That's why I'm a huge fan of the checkoff spike theory I mentioned in the main cast last week. The fact that she's got that chain choker she's always wearing. It's got that long-ass metal spike at the end and she's constantly fingering it. That's gotta be for a reason, right? Right? You continue. For a long time, there's been rumors that there's an upcoming scene in this season that will be very uncomfortable and hard to watch involving the actors who play Ramsey, Reek, and possibly Sansa. For a long time, I have been and still am worried that it could be a similar scene to what happened with Jean Poole on her wedding night in the books. However, after Roos' reveal about fat Waldo's pregnancy, I'm hoping in a weird way that has more to do with her demise with maybe Sansa being a witness to it rather than the other way around. Man, I would strap in for at least a heavily implied Sansa rape scene with Theon being complicit, like in the books. Um, It's going to be gross. It's going to be uncomfortable. And the way they're talking about it, I think we need to prepare ourselves mentally and emotionally to witness that. Now, having said that, here's what I hope happens. Ramsay orders her to strip down, naked. He's about to claim his, uh, his betting rights. He orders Theon to get her slick as a baby seal for him, just like in the books. But then Theon finds his metaphorical balls, puts his foot down, and refuses to humiliate Sansa in this way. That has Ramsay start on viciously. He starts in on Theon, starts beating him, whatever. Turns his back totally to Sansa, not even considering her to be a threat. Sansa sets her jaw, grabs her spike, and shoves it right in the base of Ramsay's skull as the Stark theme plays triumphantly. Who says no to that? Anybody? Done deal. Let's make it happen. Come on, Double Ds. Hunter W., I hate to keep bringing it up, but I hate Bran being cut out of season five. It just doesn't make sense. And we've been uh, we've had the perfect it'd been perfect to cut to him the scene after Ramsey made Reek apologize to Sansa for killing Bran. What are your thoughts on cutting Bran out? I'm afraid they're leaving him out, hoping they can wrap up a feast for crows and a dance with dragon all remixed up and nobody not and hopefully not step on the winds of winter's footsteps too much. I'm even more afraid that like many storylines in book four and five, the Martin has dug himself into a hole and is going to wander until he can figure it out. Well, we're not going to get Bran. That's been pretty much confirmed. Uh, I don't know if you heard on the podcast, but there is a bird's eye scene of the broken tower looking down on Sansa and Miranda. And there's actually crows uh, crowing in the background, Or cawing or whatever the hell, squawking, croaking, whatever the hell they do. And that kind of POV has kind of been reserved for like Bran's vision type stuff. And I wonder if they're hinting for us book readers that Bran is keeping an eye on what's going on in Winterfell, which we know he does in the books. So even though we don't see Bran we might be set up for like a beginning season six flashback sequence of Bran uh, ensconced in the tree roots with his eyes rolled back and he's just showing white and he just has these flashbacks of everything he's seen from the crow's eye perspective. So even though we don't have Bran, we will have brand in retrospect. Does that make sense? Um, I'm still worried about, you know, Isaac growing up and, and being seven foot tall. Um, And what that's going to look like. But on the other hand, we've also had a year to forget all that stuff. And if they, you know, get rid of Saruman the dingy and give us a really honest to God, three eyed crow, blood raven, uh, withered root coming out as I badass, I will forgive it all. He continues, "Stop me if you've heard this one before, but where the hell are the White Walkers? I know it's a running joke throughout the books and the show, but aren't we overdue for a glimpse or a creepy scene to finish the episode? If I'm not mistaken, we haven't seen them since the baby was turned last season." Uh, yeah. Yeah. The White Walkers have been a- gone in, in 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 book terms, they've been gone a hell of a lot longer. Like We got that scene of going way north in the land beyond winter or the winter beyond lands or whatever it's called. We don't get that in the books. That's actually new show information. So it's been a long time. And I think that's kind of deliberate. Uh, You know, we're like all focused in this Game of Thrones, which ultimately isn't going to mean shit when these guys come and march on the wall. So I kind of think it's intentional to establish this threat and then kind of lull us to sleep. With the the Storm of Swords and the Clash of Kings and the Miranese Knot and all that stuff, we kind of fall asleep and forget about these people. Um, So it'll be shocking. Uh, We can all kind of be shocked, along with all of Westeros, when they rear their scaly, icy heads. Finally, he says, Sorry if this has been asked in your previous cast. I can't remember it, but I've only been listening since season four. Has the show ever explicitly shown Arya or Jon's power to warg? I feel like it's important to the overall story, but I also feel like it's late to reveal for show watchers only. P.S. would love to hear the tirade Jim has if they reveal John can warg after he appears to die. He would hate that shit. I don't know. Because we know that the Starks have the warg power. I've certainly mentioned that enough to establish it. And it's not a new thing. Um I think what drives Jim crazy is when he when something just like just when you need it appears and you don't know it's 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 not based on anything i know he wasn't really crazy about the guy being resurrected i i don't i i don't know i can't explain why he does like some things and doesn't like others it's it kind of only makes sense to him so i don't know about the whole flip his shit flip tables whatever uh on that possibility um but to answer your question i've always thought in season 2 episode 4 when they show uh, Rob's invasion uh, and, and the beginning of the battle of the whispering woods that we are intended to see the POV uh, of gray wind to be Rob warging into him, you know, the way you compare that way, that shot with the way Brand when brand warms into uh summer, uh, I think that that's intentionally and kind of a nod in the show. So we already have kind of one confirmation it would be fairly easy, and in fact, I think it's going to be interesting when Arya gets blinded, assuming she does get blinded, for her to de- start demonstrating warging powers. I think it's kind of hinted in the books that at least part of her being able to cope with the blindness is 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 is, uh, is her learning to warg and to compensate for that. Also, being robbed of one sight lets her concentrate even subconsciously on working this other gift. So I think we might be in for some of that. We might be in for some of her uh, having some of these wolf dreams of Nymeria attacking the Freys on her behalf. Um, you know, maybe we'll even see uh, Nymeria tear the throat out of one of the people on her prayers. I'm trying to think of, of who one of those would be that would be vulnerable in that position. Certainly not Wal- Walder Frey. But anyway, that's that's a possibility. And I think when it comes time for John to warg into ghost or however they decide that uh, that they could set up, um, you know, stuff with camera tricks, showing John's eyes, showing ghost eyes, um, that they could visually explain what's happening in a way that I think most people will catch up uh, and keep up with. So it doesn't worry me that they haven't shown other Stark children besides Bran being able to warg. Um, I think they kinda have with Rob, but you know, that was a really subtle thing, and I think we will get some with Arya. Now, on the other hand, if we don't get any of that warging stuff with Arya, then I'm gonna start being on the warging is only for Bran in the show. And that John won't get ghosted. Uh, in fact he'll just be resurrected by the Lord of the Light somehow. Um in fact, if I go back to my Silise theory, Perhaps when Stannis um, has Selyse burnt, you know, I'm just going to run this theory. uh, He has Shireen sent back to the wall, protected by uh, Melisandre, or perhaps he just banishes Melisandre because he's overcome with grief and he doesn't want her corrupting influence around his family anymore. Or maybe maybe Shireen is not happy entirely that Stannis had his mother burned. So uh, she demands Melisandre being sent back to the wall. They got to have something to get Melisandre sent back to the wall so that she can resurrect John. And they doesn't, there doesn't need to be a complicated warging plot. She could just breathe the kiss of life into him. Either she dies or he lives or whatever. There doesn't have to be warging involved. So if we don't get any warging with Arya this season. And if John uh, is resurrected late this season, or early next season, without any kind of warging, then I'm just going to say it's canonical for the show that only Bran can warg, which is stupid, but whatever. Nicole D. There was a leaked filming picture where we saw what looks like Jorah fighting the fighting pits with Tyrion sitting next to Danny watching. I think Danny judges Tyrion for his family's crimes or his own. He demands trial by combat and Jorah, knowing he's about to die from Grayscale, fights for Tyrion. Well, Nicole, I've got a treat for you. Uh, Kevin S. from Seattle sent me a link from Reddit, which I actually already read, um, but he prompted me to actually consider this for the tinfoil of the week. This is the first. This is a tinfoil first. This is show-derived tinfoil. This is a tinfoil crackpot theory based on stuff we know from the books, but primarily influenced by the changes in the show. So I thought we'd, 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 we'd change it up. And... Half of this comes from a guy named CryptorChild92 on Reddit. And about half of this is stuff that I've extrapolated or supported based on his original theory. So let's start off. We're all on board with the Jorah equals John Connington. He is literally playing the role of John Connington or the part that we need John Connington to play. Uh, it cuts out the middleman Uh, It gets Jorah and Tyrion together much quicker, it eliminates a potentially confusing, and I suspect ultimately amounting to nothing, Aegon, a landing plot in Westeros. It gives us a vector to spread a wide-scale disease, a marine, without adding any new uh, parts, like the Pale Mare, which amounts to dysentery, which nobody wants to see, thousands of extras shitting their pants. And getting the bloody flux and all that stuff. Give them grayscale. It's something to recognize. You can see it on their faces. You can see the people moaning in the streets. It's going to be a shit show. So, and I know, I know, I know. It takes, grayscale takes a lot longer to spread. On the other hand, grayscale on the show can do whatever the hell they want. It could be like the walking dead zombie virus. It could, you could You could come back in 15 seconds or nine hours. Just have whatever the plot de- demands. So there we go. Jorah equals John Con. Done deal. This theory, called Jorah the Explorer, which I thought was pretty funny, goes a lot further than that. Could Jorah replace both Euron and Victarion Greyjoy, for example? Let's consider. Jorah and Tyrion are currently somewhere in or near the Ruins of Valeria after escaping from the Stone Man. In the books, Euron claims to find his horn, Dragonbinder, in the Ruins of Valeria. Is it possible, in traveling through the ruins of Valeria, for Tyrion and Jorah to discover some ancient dragon horn? Maybe Tyrion has heard of such a thing in all of his reading, and he recognizes the mythical artifact. Hell, there's even a hint in the show. Tyrion says, are you going to bring Daenerys a souvenir from her ancestral homeland in case I'm not enough? Jorah says you'll be enough, but imagine how much stronger his position will be in her eyes if he manages to recover a dragon horn, and it works. Thus, Jorah could expl- replace both John Connington and Euron. But wait, there's more. There's a lot of speculation that Tyrion and Jorah will be captured by pirates because, well, that's what happens in the books. And from the preseason trailers, we know Jorah eventually ends up fighting in the pits. I mean, we all saw that in the trailers. Nicole Salt and the, the pre-release stills. It's possible that ja- Danny judges him. As a traitor and has him thrown into fighting pits to, you know, as some kind of trial by combat or maybe just to kill him. Who knows? But this would kind of contradict her earlier statement from the episode that only free men would be allowed to fight in the pits. So what if Danny welcomes both Jorah and Tyrion into her council in gratitude for bringing her the horn? I know I'm running with the previous theory, but, but stick with me. This is tinfoil, goddammit. What if Jorah is sitting beside Danny as she is witnessing the fighting in the fighting pits like in the books? just like where the the poison locust plot comes from. Drogon, having been attracted to the the smell of blood and death from the fighting pits, uh, is attracted. He lands in the middle of the fighting pit, starts fucking shit up like only a giant dragon can do. Jorah jumps into the fighting pits, perhaps because he knows he has grayscale and is suddenly reckless in his defense of his queen. He shouts at the great beast, me, try me over here, me. Jorah has just successfully replaced Sir Barristan. But let's go back and run with the captured-by-the-slaver's angle for a bit. What if the slave ship they were captured by has a certain red priest? Or, more interestingly, what if it has a rather attractive red priestess that was giving Tyrion the eye a few episodes ago? A red priestess who sees Jorah's grayscale and decides to try to treat it with fire magic, thus hiding him with the Red Hand of Smoky Doom. Boom, Jorah has just replaced Victarion. Regardless of how he arrives a Marine, with a smoky red hand of doom or in chains as a fighting slave or with honor as the man who brought Danny the key to controlling her children, he's in the pit. He watches in horror as Danny tames Drogon and then alights on his back. That's Drogon's back, not Jorah, to be clear. Although, if Jorah were writing fan fiction, that would be how this would all go down. Anyway, now it's all up to Jorah to handle the harpies. To handle the grayscale slash pair male, uh, pale mare epidemic, to handle the threats to Marine on all sides. He doesn't like this Hisdar character going around marrying his queen. He doesn't trust him, so he goes and confronts him. dar isn't going to sit there and take this crap from some upstart, disgraced knight, so he shouts to his pit fighter, Kraz, to take care of him. I'll eat your heart out, bear man, says Kraz. Then come, says Jorah. Uh, once again, Jorah has put on the shoes of Sir and the Bold, and completely replaced them. Later, Jorah, Grey Worm, and Tyrion decide to go down to the catacombs, because they decided they want to release the dragons. Maybe because they want to try out their new dragon horn. Or maybe Jorah is just desperate enough to help his queen, and wants to impress her when and if she returns. Things don't go well. Jorah is consumed by dragon fire. Jorah has just replaced Quentin Martell. Now, admittedly, it's a pretty slim chance that he can fulfill all these roles. He's not the Swiss Army character of Westeros. Or maybe he is. But damn, doesn't a lot of this sound elegant as hell? Assuming that Barriston, Euron, Victarion, John Connington all have an important part to play in the story, why can't he be all of these things? I think the biggest stretch is the Quentin Martell angle. But do you know some boring rich kid who is probably extraneous to the plot at this point? Someone who needs to die to free up Danny to marry someone more awesome. Someone who knows where the dragons are located and might be crazy or desperate enough. Or maybe armed with a stolen dragon horn he doesn't understand. Something he might have made off with from the Queen's Chambers as he fled the wrath of Jorah the Bold. Someone desperate enough to hold power in the absence of Danny that he'd be willing to risk a dragon's fire. Someone like Hisdar Zolorak. Sounds pretty cool to me. So there you go. Some show derived tinfoil. How's it fit? How's it sound to you? This is a rapidly developing theory. It just came out this week. This is fresh off the tinfoil presses. I'd love to hear your guys' takes on it. Poke holes in it, elaborate. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how how it matches up with, with the season, but I'm I'm loving it so far. Send all that into Game of Thrones at baldmove.com. You can also discuss this with me on our forums at forums.baldmove.com. Take care to note which threads are marked spoilers and which threads are marked no spoilers because I'd hate for you to start uh, putting tinfoil hats on all of the show watchers. That would horrify them. So uh, I'd like to find out what you think about that. You can also follow us on Facebook.com baldmove and on Twitter at baldmove. Of course, you can go to baldmove.com to find all of your uh, content needs, all of your podcasting needs. Pretty excited to see what we're going to end up with this next Sunday and and all the Sundays to come. Thanks for being with me for yet another week of tinfoil theories and spoiler speculation, and I will see you next Friday. Until then, I'm Aaron. Have a great weekend.